Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today we are joined again by Michael Moore, Beetle County State's Attorney. So, Mike, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me again. I'm and glad I made it back. Yes, yes, we're happy to have you back. You did such a great job the first time around helping explain how grand juries work that we thought we'd bring you back for another one to help us explain yeah. who prosecutes prosecutors. That's what we're going to talk about today. Let me also first say the rest of your intro for our listeners. Again, Michael Moore is the Beetle County State's Attorney, is also our co-chair of the Prosecution Function Committee for Criminal Justice Section, and is also the past president of the National District Attorneys Association. So thank you again to Mike for being here. So like I said, we're going to talk about this question of who prosecutes or I you know, that's a fun title, but more what we're getting at is who investigates prosecutorial misconduct. So Mike, let's begin for the sake of all our listeners, just laying a foundation to make sure everybody's with us. Will you establish the parameters of what falls under prosecutorial misconduct? Well, yeah, I guess it's kind of a wide area of what could fall under prosecutorial misconduct. I mean, there could be something that a prosecutor does. I mean, probably one of the most talked about is they're withholding information or discovering materials improperly. They're not turning stuff over to the defense. That could be considered misconduct. And it could be something as minor as saying something during a trial that they weren't supposed to say. And and I think the ABA, we even tried a couple of years ago to kind of talk and maybe distinguish the two between misconduct, because that sounds like more of an intentional act by the prosecutor as compared to air where a prosecutor made a mistake in what they did, like they said something they shouldn't have, that happens to everybody that, that I would consider more of an air, but misconduct in my mind is more of a intentional act by the prosecutor. They have information, they don't turn it over, stuff like that. But they, unfortunately it's all grouped into the same category of considered prosecutorial misconduct. And I think the ABA passed a resolution saying that we should distinguish that and call it prosecutor air. And then an intentional act should be misconduct. But so it is a wide variety of things that prosecutors can do. Any violation of an ethical rule would be considered prosecutor misconduct. But I guess I don't know that I didn't give a lot of detail, but it is a lot of different things it could be. Yeah, I'm sure as we get into more of these questions, there'll be more clarity. Uh, Thank you for that. And I do appreciate you helping I mean, as you said, it's not a distinction yet, but, you know, prosecutorial misconduct, the name itself, the label, as you said, does seem to imply from the outside looking in that they intentionally did something wrong. There's some level of intent there. So I appreciate you saying that, that it all gets bundled, like any sort of error would get put under that label at this time. Well, that's good to know for our conversation. The thing is, if you talk about defense attorneys, ineffective assistance of counsel, I mean, I, mm-hmm. again, I think that's a broad term that really doesn't do justice to what's happening, because sometimes those defense attorneys will make decisions based on what they think is best for the case. And some might consider that ineffective assistance of counsel, but 
some might consider that this trial strategy or something like that. So I think it's not limited to just prosecutors. I think there's a lot of that out there where they try to group a lot of different acts or behaviors into one category and label it, which I don't think is necessarily accurate to what is actually going on. Mm. Interesting. Thank you for giving us that context. Appreciate that. You know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will see headlines pop up, whether it's in their local jurisdiction, whether it's on a more prominent case that we're all familiar with on a national level, where they'll see prosecutorial misconduct come up. And so it'll be great to contextualize this. One case that I think many of us have probably noticed and are mindful of right now is Bill Cosby getting an early release on account of what has been labeled as prosecutorial misconduct. So would you explain for our listeners what issue led to his early release and how this case fits or does not fit within the parameters of prosecutorial misconduct? All right, so the kind of the background of this case is there was two separate prosecutors, a previous prosecutor that was involved in the investigation of the Cosby case and decided that instead of a criminal prosecution, they would make an agreement with Mr. Cosby, granting him immunity to testify in a civil suit that that prosecutor thought was in the best interest of the case at that time. But that grant of immunity and kind of that agreement or the plea agreement that the prosecutor entered into was ignored by the next prosecutor. So the next prosecutor got involved in the case, uh, reviewed the file and decided that he was going to go forward even knowing about the grant of immunity and the prior agreement of the previous prosecutor. You know, I don't think it's a prosecutor misconduct case. That was all litigated at the lower court level, and the prosecutor that continued with the prosecution won those hearings. So the judge that allowed the prosecutor to use that information and to proceed in that case at the lower court level was deemed to have been a mistake at the higher court level. So Again, just because a prosecutor makes a decision that a judge later determines was incorrect, I don't think that would be what I would consider misconduct. It wasn't something that the prosecutor hid, at least my understanding of what happened. This was something that was known by everybody, that it was litigated at the lower court level, and it was just reversed on appeal. That happens more than not. I mean, it happens in all cases. A case could get returned on appeal for an error that either the judge made or the prosecutor made or the defense attorney made. Again, it doesn't mean it's intentional, but this case was more of an error that the prosecutor looked at that and said, hey, I don't think I'm bound by that agreement. The judge heard it. The judge agreed with the prosecutor, but the appeals court did not. So that's kind of why we ended up in the position we were in in that case. So I would disagree with the commentators saying that it was some type of misconduct on the part of the prosecutor yeah. uh, to get to that uh, place. So is there a better example of what would be a fit for prosecutorial misconduct, a case that you're familiar with or something that's been brought to the Supreme Court in the past that you could share with us? You know, like I said at the beginning, I think the most common cases are where the prosecutors withhold information. There was a district attorney down in Texas, and I can't remember the person's specific name, but there was a history of that in death penalty cases where there was information withheld from the defense the prosecutor was actually prosecuted for that and convicted and I think was sent to prison for withholding that information and convicting people. That would be what I would consider more of misconduct because, again, 
When I'm thinking of that in my mind, I'm thinking of an intentional act where the prosecutor knows something that is wrong and hides it or does something despite what the law is in order to gain a conviction. That shouldn't be done. That is misconduct. That's not our job. Our job is to see justice is served. Sometimes there's evidence out there that isn't good for our case, but we need to share that with the defense and proceed accordingly. I appreciate you continuing to help us make that distinction. Something we talked about on this podcast earlier in our first season was a discussion around conviction integrity units and their purpose of, you know, seeking true justice and potentially overturning wrongful convictions. This will fit into this distinction that you have consistently been making, which we appreciate, but can you help our listeners understand how this fits or does not fit in investigations of prosecutorial misconduct? I guess the distinction would be is wrongful convictions are bad, but it's not always because a prosecutor did something intentionally to get that conviction. I mean, some of those cases we were relying on an expert that was telling us something that maybe they overstated. Now, if the prosecutor was involved in that, where they were saying, hey, I need you to say this about this hair, or this fiber or something, you can't just tell me, well, it's consistent with that rug. It has to be a match for that rug or something. And now if we're saying that and we're telling the expert that that is misconduct. But if we're presenting evidence that the expert tells us is fiber or this hair match this defendant, and based on what they knew, it was an exact match. They overstated that. I don't think that's misconduct on the prosecutor's part. I mean, we were just relying on what we had before us. So not every wrongful conviction means that a prosecutor committed misconduct. There was probably mistakes made in that case and egregious mistakes. It might have been a scientific mistake. It might have been something that the prosecutor had done. It might have been something that the defense attorney had done in that case where there was a mistake made. But I think that the conviction integrity units are good to go back make sure everybody was doing what they should have been doing. I mean, there's no excuse for not turning over information. I'm a prosecutor that believes in giving the defense anything that I have, anything that I'm reasonably aware of, that should be shared with the defense. So there's no excuse for that. The scientific stuff, we should be educated. We should know like, if we have a DNA case or we have a fiber case or a fingerprint case, we should know the limitations of that. And I think we've learned more about that over the years. But, you know, 30 years ago or 20 years ago, when these maybe we over relied on fingerprints or we over relied on fibers or or ballistic matches or something like that. Yeah, we should go back and look at those cases, make sure first that there wasn't anything intentionally done, but also make sure that there wasn't any errors. That something that we relied on as exact evidence back then might not be exact evidence now. And we should go back and reopen those cases and make sure that that person is the person that committed that crime. And, but I do think you're right. I think the listeners should know. I, I think that people, when they hear this in the press of a wrongful conviction, they always think that the prosecutor did something wrong. And I don't think the cases that that's happening, that's what's happened. I don't think that's clear, but I just think it's a distinction that kind of goes together when you hear that wrongful conviction, when you think automatically the prosecutor did something wrong. And that could be the case. But more likely than not, that's probably not the case. The prosecutor probably didn't do anything wrong. They were just relying on the information that they had at that time. And that's why it's important that prosecutors today have these 
conviction integrity unit so we can go back and understand that, hey, we're not blaming anybody for this, but we want to make sure we got these things right. We're not pointing fingers at anybody. We just want to make sure that we have the right people convicted of the right crimes. Yeah, thank you for that. So let's talk about like who prosecutes or who investigates when we're looking into prosecutorial misconduct. So what happens when a prosecutor is accused of misconduct and then who investigates or is responsible for holding prosecutors accountable? So I would say that's a three-pronged question, obviously depending on what the misconduct is. The first would be the system, the court system. That's what appeals are for. That's what motions are for. If a prosecutor is doing something incorrectly, if they make an error, if they commit misconduct, that particular case should be addressed in that case. So that would be done in the court file, on appeal, the Supreme Court, the judge. Those are kind of the first line of defense against that. The defense attorney that's representing the other side should, should hold the, you know, the prosecutor's feet to the fire if they're doing something they shouldn't. So that's kind of the first hurdle. The next is most of the time, if not all the time, at prosecutor misconduct could be an ethical violation. So every state has a board of ethics. I think every attorney has a duty to file an ethical complaint against another lawyer that they believe has violated the ethical duty. And then that ethics board should do an investigation of the prosecutor, just like they would do any lawyer. And if the prosecutor has violated an ethical rule, committed misconduct, they should be disciplined for that. And then the final one would be if the misconduct amounts to a criminal investigation, and then they should be investigated by law enforcement agency, either the, the state investigating agency, the local investigating agency, that should be filed. And if they're doing something like I, I mentioned, that prosecutor in Texas that was convicted of withholding information, that was a criminal investigation done by law enforcement So that's kind of the third part. Hopefully it gets fixed in the first part. I think that's where you would see most of it is in these cases where a judge handles it, a Supreme Court overrules it or reverses it, kind of like in the Cosby case. That was a case where, you know, I don't know that the prosecutor made an error or an ethical violation, but the prosecutor made a mistake. He falsely relied on something that he shouldn't have, and it got overturned in that case. I know too many prosecutors that have gotten in trouble from the disciplinary board that for committing misconduct or errors or something like that. The, the, a good example would be the Duke lacrosse case. That case, that prosecutor got disbarred for that, and he should have been. And then, like I mentioned, the criminal case, the prosecutor in Texas went to jail. So I think those are the kind of the three ways that I see prosecutors being held accountable for their misconduct, either intentional or not. Hopefully that system is used and prosecutors know and are accountable to that system. Yeah, thank you for that. It is a heavy burden that prosecutors carry being the person that victims are turning to and relying on for securing justice for them. I can't imagine what that's like. So I'm curious to know before we wrap up our conversation today, now, someone listening to this might think, well, what protections are there for prosecutors? And I'd be curious to know, seems like it would be easy for someone who was upset with a verdict or didn't want someone to get conviction to 
either falsely or frivolously make an accusation of misconduct or something like that. So what are their protections for prosecutors? Yeah, I I guess the best advice I was ever given was by a judge when I first started being a prosecutor. And the thing that he told me is that any decision you make, anything you do, just be able to justify it, be able to answer the question of why you did what you did, why you made the decision you made. And he said that people might not agree with you, but at least be able to articulate why you did that. And I kind of taken that to heart. I don't think it's a heavy burden. It's just, we want to do the right thing. We want to document why we did what we did. It's not win at all costs. It's make sure justice is served. And sometimes justice is served by a person being acquitted or by a person not being charged or by a prosecutor making a decision that, hey, this isn't a case that's going to go forward because I don't have enough evidence. Even though you have a victim in your office that's really pushing you to go forward. So again, document everything, have the, the files, you want to keep good records, keep good notes, uh, you know, remember why you did what you did and be able to sit down with anybody and explain to them why you did what you did. And again, not everybody would agree with you, but at least you would have an explanation of why you got where you're at. That would be my advice to any prosecutor. And any attorney, really, for that matter, I've seen defense attorneys do the same thing. They really document the decisions. They make records sometimes because they told their client they want them to do one thing and the client doesn't want to do it. So they make records and prosecutors should do the same thing. If we are aware of something, we should make a record. We should share that information. We should document why we did what we did so we can uh, justify it later and we're not going to then get in trouble. I mean, Again, like I said, it, it's not win at all costs. It's we want to be ministers of justice and make sure justice is served. And, and unfortunately, sometimes justice is served by a person not being convicted, even if they've committed the crime. And it's a hard pill to swallow for the prosecutor. It's a hard pill to swallow for law enforcement. It's a hard pill to swallow if there's a victim involved. But it's probably the right thing. It's the right result for the system and for the benefit of everyone, because you have to have confidence in the system. You have to rely on what your prosecutor is doing. And if prosecutors commit misconduct or errors, the whole system suffers. So I guess that would be my thoughts on that is, is really document what you did and justify any actions you take. Yeah. I really appreciate what you said there about preserving the system I recall recently speaking with a defense attorney who is providing mentorship to people, you know, looking into pursuing that path for their profession. And they asked the question of, well, what do you do if you know your defendant's guilty? Then he gave a similar thought around, well, it's about protecting the constitution, about protecting the system because we all rely on the system. So that was interesting of you to note it was probably the best outcome, even if it results in in an acquittal. Well, thank you, Mike, for all of that. Before we close, is there any final thoughts you want to leave with our listeners? No, I mean, I appreciate being on. I think it's an important topic. I would just keep in that context that when you hear the phrase prosecutor misconduct, make sure it's actually misconduct and not just an error that a prosecutor makes. Everybody makes mistakes. Mistakes are made in every trial as long as it doesn't impact the outcome, it's just normal human behavior. But misconduct, if a prosecutor does something intentionally, I have no tolerance for that. And the book should be thrown out. Mm -hmm. And so would the first step be reaching out to, like you said, the the court, 
But then there's also the state bar, right? Can yeah, we reach out to you for that? Yeah. Pursue every avenue and the court, the case that you're involved in, the bar, if it rises that level, there should be a criminal complaint or a criminal investigation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you again, Mike. Listeners, this was Michael Moore, Beetle County State's Attorney, co-chair of the ABA Criminal Justice Section's Prosecution Function Committee and past president of the National District Attorneys Association. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod. 